Our Constitution is a document in which we, the people, tell the government what it is allowed to do. We, the people, are free. Hey, once again, we welcome you to Constitution Classroom. Your host is Colonel John Eidsmo with the Foundation for Moral Law. Colonel Eidsmo, great to catch up with you once again. We've spent some time the last few weeks on the 14th Amendment, and uh, I know there, there's still more to unpack on that amendment, but today you're going to be talking about some very relevant stuff. Very relevant, and the 14th Amendment is probably the most important amendment of all since the Bill of Rights themselves, with the possible exception of the 16th, which of course establishes the federal income tax. But remember, the 14th Amendment was adopted in 1868 after the war between the states, and we think of this amendment as the amendment that gives equal protection of the law to everyone and also to provide for due process of law, that is, that no one can be deprived of life, liberty, or property without due process of law, which means, at the very least, some kind of notice and some kind of hearing. What more it involves is open to some dispute even still. The Privileges and Immunities Clause, which, as we saw last time, is very confusing. It's not at all clear what the framers meant by this, but my suggestion is that what they were talking about is things that might not be constitutional rights, but would be privileges that the state seeks to extend, like, for example, driving on state highways or hunting on state lands, things like this, and provides that if one citizen, a citizen of this state, is to have that right, that same right must be extended to citizens of other states as well, because the first part of that amendment provides that Citizens of the United States shall be citizens also of the states wherein they reside. Anyway, so now we're going to go on to four other clauses of the 14th Amendment. And some of these might seem to be ancient history, but we're going to see that at least one of them is very, very relevant today. And let's look at Section 2. Now, Section 2 deals with representatives in Congress. And now you'll recall we had a debate at the Constitutional Convention about representatives in Congress, that the larger states wanted the population to be considered in representation, and representation should be apportioned according to population. In other words, the big states should have more representatives, and the small states should have fewer. And the small states said, no, they should all be equal. All states should have equal representatives. And so... As this controversy raged on, there was a proposal by Roger Sherman. Now, Roger Sherman was an elder in the church pastored by Jonathan Edwards, Jr. He was an old Puritan, as he was described. But Roger Sherman suggested, let's have two houses of Congress. Let's have an upper house where representation is equal by state and a lower house where representation is proportional to the population. And so they agreed on that compromise. But then in the compromise, they went on to ask the question, well, should slaves be counted as full citizens or full people for purposes of determining representation? 
Well, let's take a look at what the second clause or second section of the 14th Amendment says so we understand what we're talking about here. Representatives shall be apportioned among the several states according to their respective numbers, counting the whole number of persons in each state, excluding Indians not taxed. Now, a couple of things we need to look at here. First of all, that phrase, excluding Indians not taxed. Now, that is just simply carried over from Article 1, Section 2 of the original Constitution, where Indians not taxed were not to be counted for representation purposes. But the reason for this is that some Indians had kind of integrated themselves into the, shall we call it, white society, and therefore they were to be counted just like anybody else. But for Indians that decided to stay under their tribal allegiance, we didn't exactly have reservations in those days, but those that wanted to stay under the allegiance of their respective tribes, they were not taxed. And since they were not taxed, they should also not be considered as representation, as people for purposes of determining representation. And that basic principle was continued here in 1868 in the 14th Amendment. Indians that chose to become part of the larger society, they would be counted for representation purposes, just like everyone else would. But then they would be taxed. Those who chose to stay, by this time, we're now starting to talk about reservations, those who chose to stay under the reservations and under the authority of their tribal government, they would not be taxed but they would not be counted for determining the population for purposes of how many congressmen a particular state gets. But the major change that we see here from what Article 1, Section 2 said is counting the whole number of persons in each state, not just free people, not just white people, but the whole number of persons in each state. Now, in the original Constitution, Article 1, Section 2, there the Constitution had said that other people, that is, those who were not being counted as citizens and those who were not, as Indians, not taxed, they would be counted as three-fifths of a person. And we hear so much being said today, this shows how racist the Founding Fathers were, that they considered blacks to be only three-fifths of a person, only 60% human, in other words. But that's not really what this was all about. Here was where the question came in. And it was, frankly, a raw compromise between the North and the South on the slavery issue, but also on the issue of direct taxation. Now, what direct taxation is? Well, the Heritage Guide to the Constitution says Nobody really clearly defined it at that time, and nobody seems to define it today, but what it seems to mean is that a tax placed directly on a state under the Articles of Confederation, the federal government did not have the power to tax citizens. Rather, what the federal government would do is they would make a requisition. That is, they'd say, here is what the federal budget is going to have to be for this year, and we believe that North Carolina's fair share of this ought to be this much, and we request that you pay. And 
it seems like direct taxes were those that were put on a state rather than on individuals. And the direct taxes would be determined by the number of people in the state. But again, do we count slaves? Well, so two questions here. Do we count slaves for purposes of determining the population for representatives in Congress? And do we count slaves for purposes of direct taxation? And frankly, between the North and the South, there is a lot of hypocrisy on both sides of the issue here. As far as counting slaves as people for representation in Congress, well, the South says, well, of course we count them. The North says, no, of course we don't. Because if they were counted, that would mean the South would have more political power. They would have more representatives in Congress, even though some of those representatives would be based upon people that were slaves and people who therefore did not have the right to vote. The North objected to that. The South insisted that's the way it ought to be. But then there came the question, if we're going to have direct taxes, that is, if taxes are going to be imposed directly on a state, and if we're going to apportion that tax based on the population of the state, do we count slaves in the population? And the North says, well, of course we do. The South says, no, we don't. So again, you see some hypocrisy on both sides on this issue. And at one point, it looked like the convention might even break up over this issue. One representative of the convention from the northern states, Elbridge Gary of Massachusetts, said that, well, down in the south, they're using slaves to do the work that we use cattle and horses to do up here. And so if they can count slaves, we should be able to count cattle and horses. At that point, a southern delegate said, well, maybe we ought to be getting out of this United States and making alliances with some other power in Europe. And things seem to be on the verge of breaking up. And then we come to the compromise, one of the major compromises of the convention, that for both purposes, representation and taxation, a slave would count as three-fifths of a person. Credit card bills have gotten out of hand, and you care about your credit. Call Consolidated Credit now. If the interest rates on your credit cards are so high, it'll take years to get out of debt. Call Consolidated Credit now. They've helped over 6 million people with credit card debt. Without destroying your credit, they can consolidate your debts into one lower payment, reduce your interest rates, and get you out of debt fast. The program works. Call Consolidated Credit now. Call 800 406 0046. 800 406 0046. That's 800 406 0046. Consolidated Credit Counseling Services, Inc., 5701 West Sunrise Boulevard, Fort Lauderdale, Florida, 33313. Licensed by the New York Department of Financial Services and by the Vermont Department of Financial Regulation, Maryland DM 1492, Oregon DM 80092. Licensed by the Virginia State Corporation, Commission License Number DC 83. Service may adversely affect the individual's credit. Non payment of debt may lead to additional finance charges or collections activity, including legal action, not a loan company. 
Gold prices keep climbing and just hit an all-time high. COVID-19 and battered global economies are sending investors to the safe haven of physical gold to avoid losing value in their IRAs, 401ks, and stocks. Don't stand on the sidelines and wonder what the stock market is going to do next. Protect and grow your financial future today with a call to American Bullion, the leader in gold investments. You have valid concerns and we have simple solutions for all needs and budgets. In fact, we specialize in first-time gold buyers as well as veterans. Find out about American Bullion's hassle-free process to transfer any portion of your IRA, 401k, or stocks into the long-term safety of a gold IRA today. Call 800-GOLD-IRA and ask for our free gold guide. That's 800-465-3472. 800-GOLD-IRA. Grow your financial future with the rising value of physical gold and protect yourself during this worldwide crisis. Call the leader, American Bullion. 800-GOLD-IRA. You know, it's true. Difficult times have a way of focusing us. We have to think about what matters most when it comes to our spending, our health care. No doubt. This is why so many people are joining MediShare right now. MediShare is a trusted way to save up to 50% on your monthly health care costs. More than 400,000 people have already made the switch. It's pretty obvious why, too, especially now during this challenging season with health care costs and out-of-pocket expenses going up. MediShare can save you a lot of money. The typical family saves $500 a month. And MediShare is a Christian health care sharing ministry that's worked beautifully for 27 years. There are different options to choose from to fit your budget. I'll give you the number here in a second. And if you call, you can get a price within two minutes. Maybe now is the perfect time to make the switch and start saving. Here you go. Call 833-34-BIBLE. That's 833-34-BIBLE. 833-34-BIBLE. And just like that, we are back. This is Constitution Classroom with your host, Colonel John Eidsmo from the Foundation for Moral Law. Colonel, we went to break just as you were mentioning uh, the three-fifths compromise uh, on slaves and and uh, the census, and I'm anxious to hear your thoughts on this. Uh, I know you've talked about the three-fifths uh, th- uh, issue before, but this gives us some real insight into uh, where the founders and the founding generation actually stood on slavery. And so many now, especially today, are taking this to mean that the Founding Fathers were pro-slavery. The Founding Fathers did not consider blacks to be human. Let's just make it clear, nobody here is saying that blacks or slaves are anything less than 100% human. This is simply a raw compromise, one which may have been thought would probably be temporary, but a raw compromise without which they probably wouldn't even have completed the Constitutional Convention let alone gotten the convention or the Constitution ratified by the states. But many of the founding fathers, contrary to what we're being told today in an age when we're seeing the pulling down of statues of George Washington and Thomas Jefferson and even Abraham Lincoln and others, but many of the founding fathers were very staunch opponents of slavery, and others, even though they owned slaves, nevertheless thought the institution was wrong and were hoping that the day would come soon when the institution could be abolished. John Adams, for example, who was our second president, he called slavery an evil of colossal magnitude. And 
very much wanted it to be abolished. His wife, Abigail Adams, was probably even stronger on the issue of abolishing slavery than John Adams was. Their cousin, Samuel Adams, Samuel Adams is considered to be the father of the American Revolution, but Samuel Adams likewise was a strong opponent of slavery. Think about Alexander Hamilton. Now, Hamilton was a founding member of the Society for the Manumission of Slaves, and he declared it as our Christian duty as a nation to abolish slavery. Patrick Henry, Patrick Henry was not a delegate to the convention. He thought that the convention, the Constitution itself, was a compromise with the forces of demagoguery and with the forces of totalitarianism. He thought that it had the seeds of too much federal power. But Patrick Henry himself was a slaveholder. But he declared at one point that, how can it be that I, a professing Christian, am an owner of slaves? And went on to say how this is an evil institution. It is repugnant. It is inconsistent with the Bible. And he said, we are in a situation here where it's impractical to simply abolish the institution. Frankly, if we did, he is saying that the slaves would have no way of supporting themselves. And so he says we can only hope and pray that the day will soon come when this abominable institution will be abolished from the face of the earth. John Jay, who was governor of New York, one of the authors of the Federalist Papers, a founding member of the American Bible Society, and also I could say about John Jay that he was the first chief justice of the United States Supreme Court. He was also a strong opponent of slavery. He had, as governor of New York, promoted a bill in New York to abolish slavery in New York. And yes, there had been slavery in those days in the northern states as well as in the southern states. Thomas Jefferson. Now, Jefferson was a slave owner, but Jefferson sowed the seeds when he declared in the Declaration of Independence that all men are created equal. And he was speaking about the evil of slavery when he said that I tremble for my country when I reflect that God is just and that he will not stay his justice forever, saying that this institution of slavery is a great evil, and it's going to bring down upon us the judgment of God. James Madison, man who we sometimes call the father of the Constitution, and certainly he contributed a great deal to the ideas of the Constitution. He was a Virginian. He, too, was a slaveholder, but... He declared that the whole Bible is against slavery. Nevertheless, he thought that at this point, emancipation is impractical, again, for many of the same reasons that Patrick Henry thought emancipation to be impractical. For one thing, many of the slave owners had their slaves mortgaged. In other words, they really didn't have power to free them. And if they had freed them, the slaves would not have a way of taking care of themselves. And... It'd just kind of be like living livestock run free. They would starve. They wouldn't have any way of supporting themselves, he thought. Governor Morris. Morris is thought by many to be, well, some say he, rather than Madison, should be called the father of the Constitution. 
He spoke at the convention more frequently than any other delegate, and his contributions when he spoke were very substantive. He was the one who chaired the Committee on Style that actually wrote the draft of the Constitution, which was adopted with very few changes. You could call Madison the father of the spirit of the Constitution and Morris the father of the letter of the Constitution. He called slavery the curse of heaven upon those states in which slavery is practiced. Now, George Washington was a slave owner, but he frequently spoke against slavery, and he said that he hoped and prayed for a plan to abolish slavery, and his will provided for the freeing of his slaves upon his death and for the freeing of his wife's slaves upon her death, Ben Franklin, now Franklin owned slaves in the 1740s when he was younger, but he became a very vocal opponent of slavery, and he was the president of the Pennsylvania Society for promoting the abolition of slavery, and he petitioned Congress for the abolition of slavery as well. And so many of the founding fathers, as we can see, were very strong opponents of slavery. Now, some in the Deep South were not, but... To say that the Founding Fathers were simply racist and pro-slavery is just plain erroneous. Well, it's good to see the the record set straight, Colonel, because uh, right now such things as the 1619 Project is uh, not only gaining acceptance among you know many of the nation's academics and and much of the mass media, but um, I know there's been a pretty big stir here lately. You know that uh, this is something that should be taught to, to children in in the public school system, and and what you're describing is a very different picture. Than, than what the 1619 Project is is seeking to outline. Essentially, what they're saying is, look, America was founded on the idea of slavery, and any greatness that we accrued as a, that accrued to us as a nation was because it was built on the backs of slaves. And it doesn't sound like there was there was consensus that that's the way this nation would be built at all, at least among the founding generation. Well, the 1619 Project is a very biased project. In fact, even liberal historians say that as a work of scholarship, it is, it is shoddy, to say the very least. And it's intended to take the attention away from 1620 when the pilgrims landed and to focus on 1619 when the first slaves actually came to the United States. But as I say, it's really sloppy scholarship. Slavery is part of our past. It's part of our history. We need to recognize that. But at the same time, we need to recognize that where in the world, other than among Christians and among Jews, has there been a drive to abolish slavery? And we have led the way in that, as has Christian Europe led the way for that. And while certainly there is blame in both cases for being part of the institution of slavery, an institution which was almost worldwide and practiced worldwide. But we need to give credit to Christianity and Judaism for leading the way to its abolition.
once again, welcome back to Constitution Classroom with your host, Colonel John Eitzmo from the Foundation for Moral Law. Colonel, in the last segment, uh, you gave a brilliant recounting of uh, the founding generation and how there was not consensus that, yeah, slavery is a good thing and we ought to keep it around for as long as possible. Clearly, there were many of the founding generation who recognized it is a problem. Or, in fact, they would come right out and say, it's, this is a bad thing and it's a stain and we have to figure a way out of it. But there were circumstances that made it difficult, if not impossible, to solve that problem in one fell swoop. And for all the critics today, all the armchair quarterbacks who are saying, well, they should have known better, I'm just wondering, are there any parallels you see in our society today where we have a problem or we have something that uh, maybe future generations will consider a stain on us and our reputation that people can look at and say, yeah, we agree it's a problem, but there isn't the consensus or there are circumstances that prevent us from solving it in one fell swoop. I'm just wondering if there are parallels that you see. I see several parallels. Now, one parallel, of course, is to the issue of abortion. And we have what we call presentism. Now, presentism is a term we use sometimes of judging people of the past by the standards of today. And we fail to recognize when we condemn people in America in the 1700s for not being as adamantly opposed to slavery and not immediately abolishing it, as we would think it should be abolished today, we fail to consider that this was an age when slavery was accepted almost universally throughout the world, and we fail to give them credit for what they did to sow the seeds toward its abolition. But compare that to abortion. I hope the day is going to come, and it seems to be moving in that direction, when there will be a consensus in this nation that human life begins at conception and that the innocent life of the unborn person deserves legal protection. And when that day comes, as I say, I think science is moving in that direction. The Bible has always taught that. But when the day comes that we recognize this and we put an end to the practice of abortion, many are going to judge very severely a society that had in the 1980s and 90s a holocaust in which one and a half million unborn children were murdered in the United States every year. And on to today, where the number is declining, thank God, but where still over 600,000 abortions take place every year here in America alone. And future generations may judge us on that. And as they do, they need to realize that there were many of us today who did work for the abolition of abortion, and that when we tried to get bills adopted in Congress or in the legislatures and the like, they would frequently be struck down by the courts, that we would try to get pro-life justices of the courts that would uphold such laws, but that there has been a battle getting these judges nominated and getting them confirmed. And if we do get Roe versus Wade overruled, then the problem is not going to be solved at that point because we'll have to act state by state to get laws enacted that will prohibit abortion. And people will be arguing economic issues and many other things. In other words, if we're not going to abort children, then society is going to have to take care of them, things like this. Another issue that today we might be judged upon is our care for the environment. And I don't 
know that I'd necessarily say that the way we've treated our environment is worse than any other country has. I would further say that if you believe in biblical creation, you've got a better, much better basis for an environmental ethic than if you believe in Darwinian evolution. If you believe in evolution, then survival of the fittest, natural selection, if people survive and the spotted owls or the, the humpback whales become extinct, well, by Darwin's laws, that's what's supposed to happen. But if you believe in biblical creation, there is a basis for taking care of endangered species. But we have economic issues to be considered here. And, you know, if we tried to shut down all production, that would plunge this nation into a depression. How we have responded to the COVID crisis might be still another. And there are some, some on the left in particular, that seem to think the whole nation ought to shut down economically in order to overcome this crisis. Not that that would necessarily overcome it, but that's what many seem to be advocating. But if they, if we do that, that would plunge this economy into a depression. That would lead to shutdown of medical research and much of the medical progress that has been made possible by a prosperous economy. It would lead to many suicides, much depression, so many other problems. In other words, it might cost a lot more lives than it would actually save if we took that course of action. So our president today has been trying to balance these sound measures to try to prevent the spread of the COVID virus, coupled with quick progress to try to get a vaccine, but at the same time trying to keep the economy open so that we will still be in a position of prosperity, which enables us to fight these things. So I think there is, those are just three issues that I think we'll be dealing with sometime in the future there. And future generations might look back on us and ask, why didn't you act differently? Well, they need to understand the circumstances before they, they judge us today. As we need to understand the circumstances before we judge those of the 1860s or the founding fathers of the 1780s. I really appreciate your answer, and, and, and I hope that people will take that to heart. That is, that's some serious uh, philosophical and intellectual ammunition for when we're confronted with, with that idea. Well, they should have known better, because it's a good bet. Somebody's going to be saying that about us at some point as well. Well, that pretty well covers Section 2 of Article 14. And in Section 2, again, we've seen the representation issue. The old three-fifths rule has been abolished. And with the exception of Indians who stay with their tribal governments that are not being taxed, all people will be counted for purposes of determining representation in the U.S. House of Representatives. We move on, then, to Section 3. And Section 3, I think you'd have to say, involves a retribution against the American South. When it says that no person shall be a senator or representative in Congress or elector or president and vice president or hold any office, civil or military, under the United States or under any state who, having previously taken an oath as a member of Congress or as an officer of the United States, 
or as a member of any state legislature, or as an executive or judicial officer of any state, to support the Constitution of the United States, shall have engaged in insurrection or rebellion against the same, or given aid or comfort to the enemies thereof. In other words, what it is saying is that no one who has previously held an office in the United States, but having sided with the Confederacy in this last war, no such person is going to be allowed to hold office in the United States or in any state again. They're barred from holding any office. However, it goes on to say, but Congress may by a vote of two-thirds of each house remove such disability. Now, when they use the terms here, insurrection or rebellion, I'd have to say that I think that is really a misnomer as to what the war between the states actually was. The war between the states is not really properly called the Civil War because it's not two factions trying to gain control of the central government. Rather, it is the legitimately constituted governments of 11 southern states who have joined together in a confederacy to separate themselves from the United States and from the northern states that are supporting the United States. So it's really war between the states. And the southern states were not seeking to overthrow the president, and Jefferson Davis is not seeking to become president of the United States any more than George Washington was trying to overthrow King George III and become king of England. Rather, it is simply an interposition like this. And it was understood at that time by both sides that your primary loyalty was to your state, to call them traitors for having sided with the Confederacy, frankly, they would have been considered traitors at the time had they not sided with the decisions of their respective states. Nevertheless, as I say, this has largely been eliminated by various acts of Congress that we have pretty well eliminated these restrictions on these people and removed these disabilities as after the period of Reconstruction, we moved toward a time of healing and tried to bring the South back into the United States. And then we have Section 4. Section 4, and we'll better save Section 4 for the last segment of our classroom today. We'll be back in a minute. think some of the top investors in the world are buying gold. Recently, a handful of billionaires have been accumulating gold over other forms of investments. When the world's financial moguls like Sam Zell begin choosing metals, perhaps it's time you listen and follow suit with your own personal investments. Gold is formally recognized as a hedge against currency depreciation and inflation. Take David Einhorn as one example. Einhorn founded Greenlight Capital in 1996 and surged that fund from $900,000 to as high as $11 billion. Einhorn believes 
believes that the central bank's recent stimulus efforts will have an effect on pushing up the value of gold. He keeps 10% of his firm's value stored in gold bullion. If you're interested in knowing more about gold, platinum, and palladium, call Noble Gold for a no-pressure consultation. They have the most experienced representatives and an exclusive pipeline to metal sources. Visit them at noblegoldinvestments.com. That's noblegoldinvestments.com. When thinking about life insurance, my accident reinforced you never know what tomorrow might bring. That's why I reached out to AccuQuote. AccuQuote helps people find a life insurance policy that meets their needs. Since 1986, they've helped millions of folks save up to 60% on their life insurance by comparing the rates and features of dozens of top-rated life insurance products. A healthy 50-year-old non-smoker can buy a half a million dollars of 10-year level term for less than 45 bucks a month. A 60-year-old under 120 bucks a month. Longer or permanent terms are available. Even if you already own life insurance, you really need to check out my friends at AccuQuote. Don't worry about health issues. Remember, they help me. As a pastor, I'm concerned about your soul and helping you to make sure your family is taken care of. Life insurance is more affordable now than ever, so don't make them wish you'd made that call. 877-437-4781. Call now, 877-437-4781. 877-437-4781. Each policy points and availability vary by state. Balance of nature, changing the world, one life at a time. I have seen a, a change in how I feel. I do feel better. I actually feel like doing stuff, <laughs> if that makes any sense. It's it's just a, a better feeling just throughout my whole body. Right now, Balance of Nature is offering free shipping and 35% off on any new preferred order. Go to balanceofnature.com today and use discount code USA. Now you can fly anywhere in the world and pay discount prices on your airline tickets. Book a flight today to London, Paris, Madrid, or anywhere else you want to go. And pay a lot less guaranteed. Call the International Travel Department right now at low-cost airlines. 800-215-5141. 800-215-5141. That's 800-215-5141. And once again, we welcome you back to our fourth and final segment of Constitution Classroom today with your host, Colonel John Eidsmo from the Foundation for Moral Law. Colonel, we uh, we came up on the break just as you were getting to Section 4, so let's, let's pick up right where you left off. Section 4, again, deals with some retribution against the states of the South. It says the validity of the public debt of the United States authorized by law including debts incurred for payment of pensions and bounties for services and suppressing insurrection or rebellion, shall not be questioned. In other words, we're going to honor all debts owed by the United States or owed to the United States. But neither the United States nor any state shall assume or pay any debt or obligation incurred in aid of insurrection or rebellion against the United States or any claim for the loss of or emancipation of any slave, but all debts obligations and claims shall be held illegal and void. In other words, we're going to pay debts owed by the United owed to the United States, but we're not going to pay any debts owed to the Confederacy. Well, a lot of this had to do with veterans' pensions. And so the United States paid veterans' pensions to those who served in the war on behalf of the Union, but 
those who served for the Confederacy, well, that, those were not going to be honored. They would not receive their pensions. However, most of the southern states immediately stepped up to the plate, and they themselves adopted pension plans for war veterans and were paying these pension plans well into the 1900s. In fact, the last widow of a Confederate soldier died in Alabama not too many years ago. She was quite young when she married an elderly Confederate veteran. But So this went on for quite some time. But the point simply being made is this, that this honors all debts owed to the Union, to the federal government, but not to the Confederacy. So the southern states had to assume those obligations themselves. And that was a pretty substantial burden. Let me add one thing else. We talk about the financial burden after the war. Obviously, the war cost a lot to both sides, but especially to the Confederacy, and this is one of the reasons. But we talk about some of the monuments that are being taken down today, monuments that honor Confederate soldiers, and as I would say, honoring those soldiers simply because they were loyal to their state and fought on behalf of their state. But as the these are being being taken down today, it's being said by the Southern Poverty Law Center and others that these were erected in the early 1900s, and they were erected during this area of the Jim Crow segregation laws and the like, and so obviously the erection of these statues had a racist motive. Well, they're forgetting several things. For one thing, they're forgetting that Right during the same period of time, we see a resurgence of the erection of monuments in the North to Union soldiers. Now, obviously, that is not for racism or slavery purposes. We see also that this is at a time when both the North and the South are economically recovering, particularly the South, that are now in a position to afford such monuments. But a third thing we see is that in both the North and the South, the monuments are being erected at this time because the veterans of the war are now, you know, the war ended in 1865. And so by the early 1900s, these veterans are starting to die off in large numbers. And so if we're going to honor them in their lifetimes, we have to do it now. And so both sides, for these reasons, were erecting monuments at this time. And to say that these are racist or pro-slavery monuments on either side, I think is simply unfair. Anyway, then we have the final section of the 14th Amendment, which says that the Congress, by appropriate legislation, may enforce this amendment. And as we saw last time, Congress sometimes has adopted some rather far-reaching legislation in order to support this. And while we have a little time left, I think we can quickly cover the 15th Amendment, the 15th Amendment adopted at the same time. We have the post-war amendments, as they call them, the 13th, and the, which abolishes slavery, the 14th, which establishes due process and equal protection, and the 15th, and the 15th is about the right to vote. And the 15th simply says, the right of citizens of the United States to vote shall not be denied or abridged by the United States or by any state on account of race, 
color or previous condition of servitude. And then goes on to say in Section 2, the Congress shall have power to enforce this article by appropriate legislation. Now, this took some time to be implemented because, in fact, it was implemented somewhat in the 1870s, 80s. And then as we move into the latter part of the 1800s, there are concerns about what's going on with black rule and so on. And so there is a drive toward disenfranchising blacks, and that does come in in the 1890s and thereafter. And we see various subterfuges that are used. For one thing, a literacy test. And sometimes that literacy test was so complicated that hardly anybody would be able to read it and pass the test. And so in order to enable whites to get around the test, sometimes there would be a grandfather clause, as they call it. Anyone whose father or grandfather fought for the Confederacy was exempted from the literacy test. And so, obviously, that was the way of perpetuating white rule at this time. Poll taxes were instituted. Sometimes these poll taxes were, you know, a tax that you have to pay in order to vote. Sometimes these were used for good purposes like schools and so on, but because blacks very often could not afford to pay the poll tax, many times they just had to give up the right to vote because they couldn't afford it, and some poor whites as well. But again, the seed is sown here by the 15th Amendment. The right of citizens of the United States shall to vote shall not be denied or abridged by the United States or by any state on account of race, color, or previous condition of servitude. And that gives us then the war amendments, the 13th, 14th, and 15th, and when we come back next time, we'll be ready to deal with the 16th, the income tax amendment, and some of these others. And then we'll get back after some of these to the basic Constitution itself. We kind of got off on the Bill of Rights and continued with it. But we'll get back to Articles 1, 2, and 3 of the Constitution itself. You know, Colonel, it seems as you have made your way through the Bill of Rights um, it, it's very clear the first few amendments, the first 10 amendments, the Bill of Rights itself, uh, definitely were, were restrictions on government. I think that they, they very clearly outlined, look, Congress shall not you know, do this, shall not do that. But it seems like uh, government has grown with the amendments that followed. And, uh, and I wonder, we've got about two minutes left here. Um, can you can you explain where did where did that uh, departure from the restrictive uh, the restrictive uh, uh, nature of of the the Constitution where did they veer away from that and it became more of an enabling document with subsequent uh, you know amendments? A lot of that, frankly, has to do with Darwinian evolution. You know, Darwin's Origin of Species, eighteen fifty eight, which presents a theory that. Everything is evolving, everything is changing, and this became a dominant view in academia, not just about biology, but about theology and sociology and nearly everything else, including law. And so the idea begins to develop that the Constitution is a living document. And as Woodrow Wilson says in his book, The New Freedom, progressives simply ask that we interpret the Constitution according to the Darwinian principle. That is, let it grow, let it develop, let its meaning change with time, 
and therefore let it allow a government to grow, to meet the needs of a growing and changing society. With all of this, we are seeing a much bigger government. We are seeing a government that does much more for us than previously it would have done. But it was Reagan that says the government that is able to give you everything you want is also able to take from you everything you've got. And, but that's part of where the growth of government comes in. Part of it is fueled by the 16th Amendment, of course. And the 16th Amendment is establishing the income tax, which gives government the fuel, the money, in order to become a large welfare state that it becomes. Part of it is the 14th Amendment's interpretation by which we give the federal courts the power over human rights cases. But many more things will come, as we'll see in coming weeks. 